Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. So this panel is about financial data in environmental reporting. Um, there are a few ways that we could go about this. The way that we're going to do it is focus more on where, where we source financial data. Not loud enough? What we're going to do primarily is focus on where we're sourcing the data that we're using, how we're thinking about it. And we're going to start off by each of us talking a little bit about a story that we've done and the reporting process for that. Um, we put together a little tip sheet for you, which is on the table at the very back. And there's also a Google link um, in the Whova app on our session notes, um, if you guys want to do that. And, that. and that has clickable links. Um, so that has the stories that we're presenting, as well as you know, where we're getting some of the data that we're using. And then after we're done with that, we'll ask a couple questions, and then we'll open it up to all of you guys. Sound good? OK, so we lost one of our panelists to the PG&E blackouts. Um, so Ivan won't be joining us, but we now have an all-women financial panel, which I think is pretty cool. Um, we have Kia Collier from the Texas Tribune, and Navina, sorry, wait. I'm going to get it right. Sadasivo. Did I say it right? Okay. Yeah, you got it right. <laughs> Um, both who have done some really interesting work in this area. Um, so I will just go ahead and I'm going to start to talk a little bit about a story that I did and how I reported it, and then we'll go to Kia and then Navina. Sure, sorry about that. Okay. All right, so this is a story that we did at Bloomberg at the beginning of this year. And it's, you know, an environmental story at heart. It's about how we use public lands, how we recreate, and the impact that that's having on communities. And this story was really about how outdoor recreation is reshaping Western economies, in particular by displacing oil and gas and mining production in a lot of towns. Um, this was a very data-heavy story, as you can see, and lots of data visualizations. One thing that we heard when we were talking to people in some oil and gas and mining towns is that after decades of going through these commodity cycles of the boom years being really great and the bust years being just devastating, a lot of the leaders in these communities decided that they want to diversify their economies, they want to kind of smooth out those booms and busts and try to figure out, you know, what are the other natural resources that we have that we could make use of? And, you know, in recent years, it's been the outdoors. So there's been a renewed effort um, to invest in outdoor spaces, to recreate, to build trails, um, to actually bring companies that specialize in recreation, such as outdoor gear companies, snowboard companies, that kind of thing, um, into these areas where people are actually enjoying the outdoors. Um, so it turns out that around the time that maybe like a year before we started working on this, the Bureau of Economic Analysis had done its first ever report on the outdoor recreation economy. So they had a lot of data that we could use um, that showed how much outdoor recreation was contributing to the national economy. And when we sort of looked at the numbers over the years, it was clear, you can see a clear sort of peak uh, with mining oil and gas, and then in recent years it's gone down. And it's kind of interesting because obviously 
you know, since 2014 forward, we have the Shell Revolution, tons of oil and gas production since then, especially in these Western states. But those are not really translating into revenues for communities. They're not really translating into jobs because so much of what's happening in the oil field is being automated now. So it doesn't have the same kind of impact on jobs and communities that you would have seen maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. At the same time, you see outdoor recreation, which was already a big contributor you know, in 2012, has been steadily rising and now it clearly eclipses um, extraction-based economic revenue. Um, so, you know, we kind of broke down what, what the different aspects of out the outdoor recreation economy are. Um, and then we did some little state-by-state -state break breakdowns. Now, the BEA data was just national data. They didn't have a lot of data state-by-state. -state. So how we did that was I basically reached out to the, economic, the Office of Economic Development at, in all of the Intermountain Western states and said, do you track this data? What kind of data do you have? Colorado had the most. They've been tracking this now for a long time. And they did not have the data in a really accessible or really easy to read format. So I had to make a lot of phone calls, you know, have researchers point me to different reports, send me different files so I could do a clear comparison, make a clean spreadsheet. I think Utah ranked number two on, the, on this kind of data. Wyoming didn't have a lot of data, but they were really helpful with the data that they had. And then there were some other states that just had nothing. Um, so based on the way that we, the direction of the reporting really followed where we had the most data. We had the most from Colorado, so we kind of centered the story on one community in Colorado, which is Grand Junction, which has been really pivoting from oil and gas to outdoor recreation. Um, I think another interesting thing that came out of this um, was that when we were talking to these communities about their relationship with oil and gas, we learned that um, a lot of these outdoor spaces are being paid for by oil, the oil and gas industry. A lot of these trails, um, the funding that's going into them are being paid by companies that are historically based in those areas. And so that creates sort of maybe for some people an uncomfortable balance between um, outdoor recreation and fossil fuel production. And so this was a, a question that I asked to everyone that I interviewed for this story, which is that how do you sort of reconcile how do, you, how do you sort of reconcile your, um, the fact that these companies are doing something that is uh, causing the climate to warm, contributing to the warming of the climate, and imperiling the very spaces that you're working to protect? And in most of these, the, most of the answers were, um, I don't know, I'm not prepared to answer that. Finally, someone said, and we end up using this quote in this story, somebody said, you know, it's not our job to solve climate change. We're just a community that's trying to get by. And I think that that's an important perspective to keep in mind when we're covering these rural communities, especially economically depressed communities, is that um, climate is something that, I mean, everyone I spoke to considered themselves liberal, for the most part, all of the outdoor recreation advocates considered themselves liberal, considered themselves environmentalists, considered themselves interested in the climate, but felt that they, uh, the realities of their world, uh, you know, limited their ability to um, sort of take certain stances. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about this project. I'm going to turn it over to Kia to talk about hers. I might grab this too. So I might first follow up on something that Catherine said. You mentioned 
sheets and data a lot. And um, if you're interested in getting into, you know, economic financial reporting and you don't know how to use Microsoft Excel and do basic spreadsheets, you should do that. I kind of, um, the other day I was at a conference and realized that a lot of people don't know how to do that. And I sort of take it for granted because I've been using it for years and years now. And it's such a powerful tool. So Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets. <laughs> um, is my story up here? Okay, cool. So um, I work for the Texas Tribune. Uh, we're a statewide nonprofit, all digital. We're focused primarily on state politics and policy. So I'm an energy and environment reporter. So I cover um, those topics generally through the lens of state regulatory agencies. So the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates um, oil and gas, and then the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. Um, but I also um, also try to keep my pulse on you know, general statewide issues. Um, one of those is um, the oil and gas boom that's going on in Texas right now, Texas and uh, southeastern New Mexico. Um, so, sorry, I'm really nervous for some reason. I'm normally not this way. I had too much coffee. Um, so, <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm over-caffeinated. Um, so, <laughs> the oil and gas boom in West Texas is it's the world's hottest oil field, um, certainly in the country as well. Um, it's having overwhelming you know, economic and human impacts, um, and we wanted to quantify that uh, with this series blowout. Um, so um, two things here. We knew that there was this massive oil boom going on, um, and we knew that um, in 2015, uh, Congress had lifted ex um, restrictions on oil exports. And we had... Um, I guess figured out that there was a big connection between um, this ramp up in production and um, the lifting of these oil export bans. So we were trying to do two things with this story. One, quantify the oil boom and then the export boom um, through financial um, data and then uh, quantifying its impacts on the ground. So that means we were looking at um, oil and gas production figures from the Energy Information Administration. Um, and kind of like the Census Bureau, EIA has a ton more data than you think that they have. Um, it's, I don't know, just a ton of stuff. It's, do a you know? Trove. It's, it's a so treasure trove. It's a treasure trove. It's not just, you know, it's economic data, it's oil and gas um, production figures, it's forecast, it's, you know, electricity, it's, you know, coal mines, they track coal mining, any kind of energy-related thing, um, EIA. Um, we were looking at SEC filings to see who the biggest um, oil and gas players were, um, just in the Permian to see, you know, revenue. Um, there are other ways to quantify it as well, but SEC was great. That's the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, we looked at state-issued industrial permits from the Railroad Commission. We got that information from the state to quantify, you know, um, each uh, oil company has to get permits for when they drill. Um, they have to get um, air pollution permits as well. Um, we looked at pipeline data. Um, we had to buy this information from the state, actually. <laughs> um, and we, so we mapped all the pipelines and then added it up, something like 8,000 miles planned, um, which is massive. Um, we looked at flaring permits, which is a huge issue um, in West Texas right now. Um, 
They're essentially natural gas is super cheap. There's a pipeline shortage. So they're just flaring off all this natural gas. And it's, it's insane. And you like suffocate when you're out there <laughs> um, in a lot of, a lot of parts of um, the Permian. Um, we looked at water use stats, um, how much water they were using for fracking. Um, IHS Market, um, that's M-A-R-K-I-T. I think it's on the list that you um, put together. They have, um, they're an energy consultancy firm. They have a ton of, ton of stuff. Um, generally, you know, like analysts and, you know, are considered pro-industry, but they also have generally great objective data. They're willing to talk to you. Um, IHS Market is great. Um, they put on Sierra Week. Have you been to Sierra Week? It's um, a conference in Houston every year. It's You have Saudi oil kings there. You have West Texas oil guys. If you haven't gone, I would highly recommend going. It's just kind of like a spectacle. Um, and there are a lot of panels on EVs and renewables and stuff like that. Um, let's see. We used a lot of data from like Environmental Defense Fund, which um, has tracked flaring quite a bit. Um, we used um, economic data from industry groups, actually. Um, they generally, I mean, you know, it's kind of grain of salt sort of thing, but looking at tax revenue, it's, um, you have to often have to do these really complex calculations for how much tax revenue has gone to school districts. Um, and they generally have like pretty good economists, at least in Texas, who, you know, you can, just attribute that data to them. So in, uh, in quantifying the like on the ground impacts in, um, in West Texas, we were looking at jobs and employment because you know it's great for the state's economy, um, lots of jobs, people are happy out there, they're making a ton of money. Um, so we looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, which also is a tre treasure trove actually. Um, and we looked at the Texas Workforce Commission um, as well, they keep you know, tons of employment data. Um, a big thing was tax revenue. So as I mentioned, we were looking at property taxes. Texas doesn't have a state income tax, so we're looking at property taxes and sales tax. Um, and you can get them from ind individual counties, individual school districts. Um, and then in Texas, we have a state comptroller's office. They keep track of a ton of revenue, a ton of um, all things taxes, um, statewide, county by county, um, your state should have something comparable. Um, we looked at school enrollment data. Um, so we have a um, Texas Education Agency, looked at school enrollment statewide. Um, we checked with local school districts when we were you know, interviewing superintendents there who were telling us about teacher shortages and you know, their students being homeless because their parents were service, you know, service industry people who couldn't keep up with the cost of living. Um, housing prices, so we checked with uh, the local realtors associations, um, the Texas A&M Real Estate Center. Um, rents in, in like Midland, Odessa are comparable to New York in a lot of ways. Depends on, you know, the type of housing, but basically if you're not in the oil field working, you can't afford to live. Um, teachers, service industry people are just not, not making um, ends meet, and it's a big, um, big problem. Um, we, HUD, we also used um, figures from uh, housing and ur urban development. They track rental prices. Um, we used apartments.com, <laughs> which is a listing service. 
um, so many data sets, we kind of like divided this up and um, you know each tackled different um, different sections. I had two other reporting partners, and it was also a partnership with the Associated Press and Newsy, um, and then the Center for Public Integrity. So we had we could spread out the workload, um, and I would highly recommend um, partnerships um, for stuff like this because it's really hard for one person to do. Um, we looked at traffic fatalities. Um, they've skyrocketed. That's crazy. Um, Texas Department of Transportation. Um, the U.S. Department of Transportation keeps track of some stuff, but it's kind of a state-level thing. Um, we were looking at the explosion of the frac sand industry, which in the first wave of um, you know, the oil boom, fracking boom um, in West Texas, they were shipping in sand from northern states. Um, this boom, they are trying to you know, cut down on transportation costs. And so um, there's a huge boom in the frac sand industry. The sand isn't, um, isn't as good, but it saves a ton of money with transportation costs. Um, for that, we used um, Infill Thinking, which is a market intelligence firm. Um, yeah, um, I-N-F-I-L-L, thinking. There's a ton of, I mean, a lot of this is energy-related, um, and there's a ton of economic data for energy stuff. Um, a lot of stuff out there. You just have to dig around. Um, let's see, other sources, um, earnings calls. So, you know, we mainly used SEC stuff to... Um, figure out the big players, but you know, earnings calls are a great way to if you're trying to figure out how a company is doing financially um, to kind of call in, see what the CEO says. Um, sometimes you can ask questions. Um, they mostly take questions from analysts. Um, when I covered the airlines industry, CEOs would take questions from reporters, mainly from like the Wall Street Journal. But it was always interesting to listen in. Um, quarterly earnings statements, which come out at the same time as they hold the earnings calls. Um, I talked about analysts. You know, they can be super helpful. Trade groups, industry groups. Um, the International Energy Agency um, tracks. Um, they have like 30 member countries. They track renewables quite closely, but mainly oil and gas. Um, the Census Bureau is a treasure trove. I mean, I would look at... Um, just to see what kind of data they have. Um, their, uh, their media department is super helpful generally. Um, they can point you to tons of things. And if you're in a newsroom, they can come and do like presentations um, to your newsroom and super helpful. Um, and then, of course, academics, um, you know, the scientists out there who can, um, who are tracking this stuff and can, you know, help quantify some things uh, for you. Um, Oh, with the census, um, we used USA Trade a lot, which was very helpful for tracking exports and imports by port. Um, so we looked at all the ports on the Gulf Coast. And um, is there a, um, we did a chart on that shows the amount of exports that have increased. Do you have that on there? Seeing it is just kind of wild. So it's right there. So that's the amount of exports that are that the US is exporting in crude in terms of crude and that increase has almost entirely mirrored the increase in production in the Permian Basin. Um so it's really driving a lot of that. Um I think that's it. <laughs> it was a ton of uh, I wrote out a list cuz it was a ton of data sets and 
Um, again, we used Google, Google Sheets and Microsoft Excel for a lot of it to analyze the data, um, open records requests. Um, a lot of the data you have to clean up and be, you know, uh, especially governments will provide you with spreadsheets that are super messy. They're wrong. <laughs> so you, um, it's good. Luckily, we have a data visuals team of the Tribune who can help us clean up data and um, spot any kind of errors, I guess. Um, I think that's it. Um, yeah. Sure. I didn't do a really good job of introducing this series, so my apologies. But um, I had a question about uh, the tax revenue piece, because this was an interesting part of the story for me, which is that you actually looked at what are the tax burdens that are created by all of this new production in Midland, and are the revenues generated by the new production able to offset that? Can you talk a little bit about what you found and then how you got the information? Yeah, yeah that was a um, big finding. Um, Roads are being torn up, you know, schools are overcrowded, um, and there's a lag time on property taxes. So um, school districts were waiting for, of course, you know, their tax revenue is going to go up with all the new industrial activity, but it lags by like a year. So they were bursting at the seams, the roads are being torn up, and you know, the money isn't coming quickly enough. So we were mainly looking at school enrollment, I guess, and um, you know, it's like voters kept uh, rejecting like bond money to build new schools because it's a very conservative area. So um, when I was interviewing the superintendent in Odessa, he just started crying <laughs> and was like, my teachers don't have anywhere to live. Um, the homelessness rate and students had spiked to like 25% or something in the school district. Um, and, um, yeah, so there were schools mainly and schools and roads, you know, were the primary thing. Um, it's a lot of state highways. The legislature in Texas is notoriously, you know, um, tight fisted and they don't provide a ton of money for, um, for road repairs for highways. Um, they had injected several billion dollars over, you know, it was like a five year period, but there was about a billion more, um, uh, and needs that they had identified for just simple maintenance out there. Um, so that was a big finding, was that there was a huge lag time. Um, so we were looking at TxDOT, and we were looking at individual school districts as well. It was kind of hard to quantify. You know, we were, we were reaching out to the big school districts there, saying, um, give us your, you know, uh, tax revenue kind of information and tell us what's going on. So it was hard to kind of do a statewide or a Permian-wide kind of kind of thing there. And the small school districts are certainly like insane. Um, and there was a great quote in the story from the mayor, the mayor of Pecos, I think, saying, um, you know, they said, you know, they built it before we came, like they came before we built it, you know, and um, they were just super overwhelmed. Um, again, like housing is a big thing um, as well. And local realtors associations were really helpful for that. Um, thanks, Kia. So I am going to do a better job of introducing Navina's story, which was a really interesting um, investigation into who actually gets fined for environmental pollution. Um, and so she looked at environmental filings in Texas to see is there a pattern here in who's getting fines, who's paying fines, uh, how is this whole system working? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. 
Hi, everyone. Um, so I previously worked at the Texas Observer and did this project with Grist, which is where I work now. Uh, Texas is a little overrepresented on this panel right now. Um, but so this story was really looking at environmental enforcement in Texas, right? So every state has an environmental agency that is going to make sure that the environmental laws on the books are being upheld, right? And in Texas, it's the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality that Kia just mentioned a little while ago. Um, and so what, what I did here is, first of all, just request uh, 10 years of data from the state. So filed a public information request. Texas is really, sorry, can everyone hear me? Um, so Texas has really great public records laws. Um, and so I filed a request, asked for uh, a spreadsheet of every citation and every fine that the state agency has issued to anyone in the state for the last 10 years. And they sent me this massive Excel spreadsheet with 300,000 rows, right? And it's extremely messy because what they do is there are some instances when they will uh, issue a notice of violation but not issue a fine. And then there are some instances when there is enforcement and they will uh, go after an entity, right? Whether that's Exxon or Chevron or a small gas station. And really what I, the hunch that I went into this whole project with was that we there had been a ton of reporting about the large corporate um, companies in Texas, mainly the oil and gas industry, and how often they're getting a slap on the wrist, right? They're polluting the air, they're exceeding the permit limits, um, and these violations result in $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 fines, which for a multi-billion dollar company is nothing. It's peanuts, right? They just sort of write it off and move on. And it doesn't really change anything. And the whole point of environmental enforcement is you have a disincentive, right? It's a deterrent. It's supposed to be at least a deterrent. Um, and so that part of it was fairly well understood. Like environmental groups had done quite a bit of reporting on that. News organizations had done a lot of reporting on that. What I wanted to see was how the agency works with small business owners, primarily gas stations. Because if you look at any of the state agencies' annual evaluation reports, you'll find that about 20 to 25 percent of the cases, like they have little pie charts that break down, you know, uh, by industry. And like 20 to 25 percent are mostly gas station violations, right? And so I'm wondering what is happening at all these gas stations in Texas that like they're spending a quarter of their time going after these gas station owners. And so I start looking into it and you realize very quickly that these are violations essentially for record keeping, right? Gas station owners aren't maintaining their records accurately. Very rarely are there actual emissions into the environment. Very rarely are these petroleum storage tanks leaking or contaminating the ground, right? And so what I found through this analysis is basically that the vast majority of fines are for small business owners, gas station owners that haven't contaminated the ground, haven't actually really, you know, caused any pollution, but have failed, but, but have violated state regulations in terms of record keeping. And so then it became a comparison of what is the state agency's priority, right? You have a limited budget. You're tasked with making sure that the state's air and water resources are protected. And so who are you choosing to go after in terms of finding them? And so the analysis basically found that over a 10-year period, um, air polluters, that's the category that I kind of divided it down into just based on NAICS codes that were in, in the Excel spreadsheet, um, were fined about $35 million. And you see petroleum tank owners, that's basically gas station owners, are about $25 million. Uh, and so then the question became, well, perhaps there are just like a 
ton of gas stations in Texas. You know, that could be one reason why you're seeing such a high number. And so we kind of then had to collect data on the number of gas stations in Texas and the number of technically air entities, right, that the state regulates. Um, so it the state divides um, different companies into uh, depending on the permit that they've been issued into air entities, water entities, wastewater um, entities, and so on. So um, then sort of dividing by those numbers, you see per facility, you have air polluters on average getting a fine of about $580, like $600 about. And you see for petroleum tank owners, gas stations essentially, it's about $1,200. And so that tells you quite a bit about where the inv- environmental enforcement fines are coming in from, right? And this is this is data that the, the, the agency then presents to lawmakers to then hold up and say, hey, look, we're doing a great job. We're issuing all of these fines. You know, clearly we're doing what we were tasked with doing. Um, so in terms of um, data sources, again, it was the state agency that was able to provide this information. Um, and then in terms of also quantifying the number of uh, entities in the state, like petroleum gas station owners, and then also these um, air polluters, uh, sort of use the state's data again for that, but also went to trade groups and trade associations because gas station industry, it's an industry, there are trade groups that collect and monitor data about the number of gas station owners, whether they're small business owners, whether they're part of chains, stuff like that. So then got some data from them and then did an analysis uh, based off of that. And I believe this is a story that can be replicated in pretty much every state because every state has an environmental agency. We all have gas stations. We all have uh, most states, you know, have uh, some sort of dominant industry, whether that's oil and gas or coal mining or uranium mining in the West, for instance. Um, and so you can do this kind of analysis just as you might, you know, if you were on the criminal justice beat and looking at a police department and trying to see, well, who are they targeting and who are they going after? In that same way, you can kind of do this analysis pretty much in, in every state, I think. I was going to say, though, and I kind of warned you about this, Texas, I think, I believe is one of two states that puts emissions events mm-hmm. online. Yeah. So in Texas, I think in every state when um, an industrial facility busts their air permit limits, so they're allowed to emit a certain amount under their air permits, they're required to alert the state, estimate how you know much pollution was emitted. Um, and Texas and Louisiana, I believe, are the only states that put that information online. And I did a project examining the ratio of those emissions events to um, fines. And I had to literally by hand go look up the emissions events number and cross-reference it with another database of um, you know, uh, fines or whatever and see if they led to fines. Less than like 1% of them are fined in Texas. Um, but yeah, I think it's, so you know, it's like hard, to, you know, you can replicate it, but I think it might yeah. be harder. Texas puts a lot of information online. It's kind of the beauty of the libertarian kind of, <laughs> you know, not trusting government nature yeah. of Texas is that, you know, they um, are super transparent. We have great open records laws and it makes it a really fun place to be a reporter. It's also, I think, because environmental groups will try to advocate for some sort of change uh, in, in uh, at the Capitol and then they'll settle for, all right, if you won't do anything, will you at least, you know, be more transparent and like put this data online so we can at least look at it and understand what's happening. And so I think that's... And just so you know, air emissions data for every state is a public record. So even if it's not available online, you can contact the um, air agency or the public health agency and ask for that information. Um, So I 
you bring up an interesting um, point about deterrence mm-hmm. because we think about environmental fines as uh, as a deterrent. Right. Um, but in cases where, uh, you know, Sitgo obviously has one of the largest refineries in the U.S., so it sounds it seems ridiculous that they would be paying as much as like a small gas station for their air emissions. Um, but I'm just wondering how much of a deterrence are these fines, if you have a sense of that. I mean, sometimes I've found in my reporting that the cost of non-compliance can be cheaper than actually complying. Can you guys talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's a little hard to quantify, but when you talk to, um, it's mainly environmental groups, you know, who can talk about how much it would cost for a facility to put, um, you know, air, you know, air emissions equipment on these old refineries. Refineries are ancient. They're not building a whole lot, you know, more of them. Um, and they can spend, I mean, I forget how, you know, tens of millions of dollars outfitting it with pollution control equipment. And that's way more than they're fined by the state of Texas generally. So it is cheaper for them to bust their air permit limits all the time and just get these five, ten, twenty thousand dollar fines. Sometimes they're larger than that, yep. but generally they're just like a front, you know, like a hundred thousand, maybe the most that I've seen. For In one. a really egregious case where there's a combination of like yeah. wastewater violations and or like almost an explosion, almost an explosion. even then it's like fifty thousand. Yeah, yeah, and I think an und- another indicator too is the fact that the emission events over over time haven't decreased, right? Because if the state agency is doing its job and holding holding companies accountable, then over time you should see some shift in terms of how many emission events there are, how much pollution uh, is is being recorded by the state, and so you don't. You don't really see that either. And then also I would add that, at least in Texas, um, what a lot of environmental groups are doing is um, suing these companies because they're seeing that the state environmental agency isn't doing much and they're handing out these little fines. And so they're taking them to court under the Clean Air Act, under the citizen suit provision. Um, And they're getting large like judges. The ruling is, you know, $20 million uh, in some cases. Yeah, for Exxon. Um, and so that's, again, another indication of, you know, a, a judge looking at these emission events over time and kind of assessing how much they, the, the judge thinks they should have paid. Um, I want to give you guys a little bit of an example of how noncompliance can be cheaper. We ran a story earlier this year about refineries that were um, that needed to meet new sulfur requirements by next year. And so... I mean, they had many, many years to do this. The deadline is next year. The vast majority of them are not in compliance at this point. Um, And so when I asked a reporter to calculate how much would be the maximum fines that EPA could um, impose upon them for noncompliance, and the maximum fine that he found for, I think it was like a a 50,000 barrel a day facility, was $17 million a year. The cost of upgrading that facility is $125 million a year. So they can go for many, 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 many years without complying with EPA standards um, and have less than the cost of actually complying. So that's just one example. Um, I'm going to open it up to Q&A in just a second, but I just wanted to know how many of you guys have um, experience looking at SEC filings or earnings calls? Cool. And then how many of you guys are familiar with just using government source economic data? Okay, everyone. Okay, so just um, I'll open up to questions now, but feel free to ask whatever you want. If there's something we haven't talked about, that you know, okay, go ahead. 
So the question is how to vet data that's from groups that have a particular agenda. It can be kind of case by case, and that case and with EDF, they literally flew um, like monitors over to gauge flaring, and then they compared that to state data and found that the state was vastly underestimating the amount of um, natural gas that was being flared. So kind of hard to argue with science like that. Um, in the case of, so, and with the blowout story, we use tax revenue data from the Texas Oil and Gas Association. The economist that was working for them that did that um, was a contractor, and I kind of knew him, from, like, previously, and he was kind of, like, respected, and, you know, it was like, we didn't have time to do those calculations. I asked other people, like, does this seem kind of right, or, like, um, should we explain why they might be inflating it a little bit? But um, I kind of just asked around, and then we cited, you know, said this is according to the Texas Oil and Gas Association, which, of course, readers will be like, this is probably higher than, you know, it would, you know, maybe actually is. I don't know. Or maybe they're accounting for things that they shouldn't be, that kind of thing. Sometimes also you'll find that there's consensus, right? It's not just EDF, but there are also researchers who are looking at this, other scientists, you know, at universities who are looking at this, and they might disagree on the exact amount um, of excess emissions um, compared to state data, but often you'll find that there's a range, right? Often you'll find, like, yes, we all agree that in reality there's more emissions than what is being reported to the state, right? And, like, whether it's double or triple or ten times, there's disagreement about that, but we can kind of agree on this. And so that's, again, like, stuff that you can cite. If you're finding that there's only one entity, really, that's looked into this um, and you, do, you don't have other points of interest to, like, sort of triangulate stuff, you can always take that study and then go to a researcher who's looked into something similar and then run it by them and say, hey, just do a little gut check for me here and let me know if you see any big red flags. I think that's often helpful. Uh, Cliff Wilder with CleanEdge. So uh, your earnings calls, they're open to anyone? Well, um, so I have an example on the little tip sheet that you can click on. But if you Google the company and then earnings calls, they'll post... um, on their website, there's usually the date for the earning call, the number that you can call. My experience covering oil and gas companies is that reporters are not allowed to ask questions, only analysts and investors, but you can still listen in, or you could subscribe to get um, a recording of the call. And you can get a lot of really useful information in there. They talk about business risks, political risks, how they're spending money. Um, it sort of just depends. You could even, if you know that there are certain analysts that cover a company, and you, could, and you have a relationship with them or can build a relationship with them, you can ask them to ask questions for you. And if they have time, they, they might. So the question is about how to access, access data sets if you don't have a lot of resources. Um, and if, any, if anyone has noticed a difference in EIA data since the Trump administration came into office. Yeah, I actually haven't noticed that trend. So that's really interesting. What specifically, what changes specifically are you seeing? The um, production, like state-specific production, production data, for example, in oil and natural yeah. gas, um, isn't there? It's getting published much later. Um, there's gaps in in this uh, state-level data. So I haven't seen that. Uh, I I I cover a lot of EIA reports weekly and monthly on oil and gas production. I haven't seen that. What I have noticed is that there, there's now a new. Um, 
there's like a new, they've changed them um, sort of like their, I guess their margin of error to 100,000 barrels, which is like much larger than it used to be. Um, so it's always kind of curious to us if they're rounding up or down or what's going on with that. I wonder too if there's a story there. Yeah. That, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we had to, you know, not to like confirm what you're saying about it being depressing, but we had to pay thousands of dollars for pipeline data, especially. Um, and yeah, they charge a lot. We tried to really try to get them to waive the fees being, you know, like you would under a public records request, but um, it's, it's really tough and it's messed up that they charge for things like that. I don't know. But the EIA thing is really interesting. Yeah. Also, you know, places like IHS Market, which Kia mentioned, and other mar- consulting groups, market analysts, for instance, may have their own internal databases. I've found, for instance, you know, when I wanted to get a list of uh, pipelines that are under construction or um, in in the pipeline, so to speak, um, that it it you could just reach out to people like at IHS Market or other um, groups that are collecting this information. Um, and yeah, yeah, it, it ultimately ends up, I think, um, on Bloomberg Terminal too. Um, and they will often send you the data set. Like if you just have a conversation with the person, I've ended up like quoting the person and then also ha- have, having their data set to then use in the story. Yeah, so some some uh, organizations that can provide especially energy-related data sets, Genscape, G-E-N-S-C-A-P-E, they make their data available to reporters sometimes if you contact the team that is covering whatever issue you are. Um, Rystad Energy, R-Y-S-T-A-D, sometimes makes their data sets available, IHS Market, as they mentioned. And uh, we have a research uh, arm called Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which used to only cover renewable energy, but now also covers oil and gas, and they also make uh, reports and data sets available to reporters. So one of the tricks of business reporting is uh, effectively put this in any industry. If you're covering the airport, ask the airport what the, in- what the airlines are doing. Ask the airlines what the airport's doing. Um, with private companies, you can look at their competitors and talk to them. You can look at uh, if they have competitors who are public companies, go to the SEC 10Ks and 10Qs, look at the management discussion, and you can find out what their competitors say is a big problem. So once I did this and I found out about leaking pipelines being a giant problem, um, and then you can go and ask them about that. Um, but they're looking around the company that you're trying to focus on that's private um, and seeing who is their customer, who is their competitor, um, who regulates them, and you might be able to get data and information from around them. The competitor said in their public filings that they had a big problem with leaking pipelines, and that made me realize this was actually in Russia, but um, that made me realize that all the other companies um, dealing in oil and gas in Russia had the same leaking pipeline problem, and that that was a huge story and it affected the private company that I was trying to write about. Uh, I just want to add on to that, that I think when you're covering private companies, um, good old-fashioned reporting, take the CEO to lunch. I mean, you think that you have to go through the press person, but with a privately held company, things aren't as tightly guarded sometimes as public companies. That guy can't trust me as far as he can trust me. <laughs> 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 
if you already have a bad relationship, that's one thing. You could also try other people in the company, um, public relations, or not public relations, sorry, government relations people, lawyers, off-the-record lunches, get lots of good information that way. I'm oh, sorry, add one sorry. Thing. Um, I, um, I was talking about Sierra Week. Is that how you say it? C-E-R-A Week put on by IHS Market. Um, I went there and kind of ambushed CEOs and just walked up to them and asked them questions about, especially like the oil export ban and like, how has that helped you? And they were kind of just like, it's the best thing that's ever happened. And just kind of, they just talked. I don't know. And it was like the lead quotes in the story. Ambushes. <laughs> the question is how to find information about how companies are spending politically. So nine ninety. Yeah. So so with nonprofits, if you know that they're uh, donating to nonprofits, then you look up their nine nineties and see where the money is coming in from. And so that's that's one way to go about it. Your question about tax breaks, if they're state tax breaks, which is what I assume they are, then um, I'm not sure exactly how it works in Louisiana, but like for instance in Texas, it's the state comptroller controls that, right? So I don't know what the equivalent of that would be um, in other states. So kind of figure out, you know, where which state agency manages that. And then you should be able to file records requests for that information, or potentially maybe that information is already online. Well, I'm assuming they get tax breaks for the money that they're donating to the nonprofit. Oh, I see oh, what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. They can't write off. I mean, you can write off contributions to nonprofits, right? It's just a tax write-off. No. The 990, so every nonprofit has to file a 990, 990s are notoriously like crappy um, because they're not audited very much. Um, I think like one percent of them are audited, so they can just be slapped together. But they offer a lot of great clues. They do have to list their top paid um, employees and how much they make, and then um, it should list donors as well. And every nonprofit, even if it's not on their 990 or on their website, they have to give you their donors. You contact them and and. They have to. Um, yeah. So how much they're donating to uh, a nonprofit can be figured out, I think. But you know how Shell might benefit from giving that money is a little bit more complex because Shell is, again, it's a public company. Mm-hmm. But I imagine like it might be hard to figure out exactly how what, yeah. what sort of tax Just breaks they're getting for that. We'll follow up with what I asked earlier. Uh, I'm Brian from Select Tribune. I've noticed a lot of uh, the. University of Utah research dollars are coming from industry uh, to support um, research that seems to be kind of geared toward fossil fuel stuff. And if you just look into that, um, I actually have a records request into the University of Utah for one particular grant. Um, and I haven't gotten the information yet, but is this something you've come across before? Um, yeah, for sure. There are like, um, I'm trying to remember um, the exact, it's like a research arm at University of Texas at Arlington, I think, and they're entirely industry funded. So a lot of these like baseline studies about water quality and air pollution, whatever, are done by 
arms of universities that are funded primarily by industry. All of the, um, we looked at uh, uh, water pollution risks in a part of West Texas in the Balmeray area, which is like karst, you know, and like really susceptible to water pollution. All the studies that were done, which is like four or five of them, were funded entirely or partly by Apache Corporation, which is the main operator in that area. So, yeah, it's it's super frustrating. And you're like, when you ask them about it, they're like, you know, they had no say in our findings. And you're like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Texas A&M research, for instance, all of their research into sort of chemicals and fertilizers and herbicides, a lot of it is from Monsanto and, you know, large um, ag companies. Uh, we're working on a story about coal mine reclamation and so wanting to understand um, you know, how coal mining affects the soil, for instance. And if you look at a lot of the research, it's funded by Luminant, um, which is the main coal mining company um, power generator in Texas. So there's there's definitely a lot of that happening. And in that case, I mean, you can um, ask for their underlying data, which, you know, if they're saying their study is so good, like, why wouldn't they provide that to you? And then you can ask a scientist to look at it. Can you talk a little bit about the coal story that you're working on and, and sort of related to that? I'm very curious. When you start reporting a, an environmental story, like coal reclamation, obviously, environmental at its heart, um, at what point do you start thinking about the financial aspects of the story? On this one, I think we were thinking about it fairly early on because the backdrop sort of for the story was the decline in the coal industry, right? So essentially, just to give you all a broad overview, um, the gist of the story is that coal mining, the coal industry is in decline, and so they're trying to cut corners and save as much money as they can. And one way that they're doing that is um, basically finding uh, ways to sort of sidestep, sidestep cleanup at uh, coal mines. So every coal mine needs to be cleaned up, and so there are federal laws that require mining companies to uh, restore the land before they move on, and like, um, and they set aside bond money with the state to do that. Um, except, you know, we were finding that they were choosing to reclaim to lower environmental standards, um, and so that was saving them money. And one of the challenges, really, with this story was trying to kind of figure out, well, how much money exactly are they saving? Um, so these companies are required uh, to put together a reclamation cost, right? So if we went ahead and reclaimed this this piece of land, how much is it going to how much is it going to cost? And so they have a detailed calculation of that. Um, except what that reclamation cost analysis is for the lower environmental standard, and we needed to figure out well how much would they have paid if they were cleaning it up properly, right? And so that took quite a bit of triangulating, I think, comparing with other mine sites that were fully cleaned up, sort of trying to look at the differences in cost and then running that by sources who knew, you know, how to estimate these things and saying, hey, do we have this right? Does this roughly look okay? Yeah. Um, it was definitely a big challenge. Yeah, and we didn't, I mean, I wish we had gotten more, yeah. I guess. Like, um, we ended up having to ask, like, in that case, when it's hard to, you know, figure out a big 
general kind of thing, you have to go specific. And we were looking at uh, the one example that's going to be in the story is this toxic mound of dirt and how much it would cost them to remove it. And we had someone say, well, it generally costs, you know, one to three, four dollars per cubic yard of dirt. And then we calculated it based off of that. So it's like up to four million dollars for them to remove this toxic mound, which, you know, gives you some idea of like just this mound. It would cost them that much, you know. The question is, how long do you spend on a story like that? And at what point do you say, this is all we're going to get? We've spent a year on this story. so. <laughs> um, and we, when we filed it, our editors were like, we want more information. And we were like, are you kidding? <laughs> um, it's just a case-by-case thing, I think. Um, you know, you just report it until you realize you can't. There's nothing more to get. And when you've spent that long on it, it's like, I think I kind of know what I'm gonna what I'm gonna get and what I'm not. Yeah, sometimes it helps to just brainstorm with your editor and say, "Okay, all right, you want more information? Well, tell me. Like, let's think through where I would get this information, right?" <laughs> um, and so then, at that point, if that conversation is going nowhere, then you know that you're done and you have to move on. When you started reporting that story, how long did you expect that you would spend on it? <laughs> uh, I, we didn't have anything in mind. Yeah. I mean, we started at the beginning of the year, and we knew we wanted to finish sometime before the end of the year. We're also not, I mean, we're not full-time investigative reporters either. We have daily responsibilities. I was covering, helping cover a legislative session. I'm also an associate editor and was editing coverage. So, um, you know, it wasn't like we were working on it full-time. Yeah, and along the way, there were some road bumps, so publication kept kind of being pushed down the line. So it was just kind of a moving target. Uh, what's the most surprising place that you guys have found a story? An economic story? An environmental story. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. So there was one story, uh, it's a pretty short story, but it was basically having to do with tax breaks um, and finding... So so the state of Texas has uh, economic development programs where if a company can sort of claim or prove uh, that they would go to another state if it weren't for this tax incentive, then they will get, uh, they will be able to sort of write off a certain amount of taxes for 10 years, right? Um, And so I found in a couple of instances, um, just looking on the state comptroller's website where they were posting these applications, just sort of scrolling through them, I realized that there were um, oil and gas companies that were saying, hey, we want to build a refinery on the Texas Gulf Coast, um, and we want you to help us write off $50 million over 10 years or $70 million over 10 years, um, and if you don't give us this tax break, we're going to go to another state, right? Except if you look at that application, that particular refinery all of their other investments are in Texas. They don't have any infrastructure anywhere else outside of Texas. So it doesn't make any sense that you would go build anywhere else. Um, And the state was still sort of rubber stamping these projects and sort of moving forward um, with that. And so that was something that was just kind of online, just scrolling through documents on the comptroller's website. I can't really think of a specific example, but just being out in the field is always like, get 
away from your desk, you know. And um, speaking of the comptroller, so in Texas, the state comptroller oversees endangered species. It's nuts. It's It's the weirdest thing because they came up with this program to like, um, you know, uh, it was the lizard, lizard, right? Yeah, it's the dune sagebrush. The dune sagebrush. And they wanted to account for the economic impacts of listing a species as endangered. And come up with their own program so they wouldn't have to use the federal one. Um, And so I like talked to the comptroller's office a lot and they hired this like pretty legitimate scientist to oversee the program and he has been extremely frustrated with how it's gone and um it's just sor- sourcing and getting out yeah. in the field actually i have a better answer oh, <laughs> i just go, thought of yeah. uh no not compared to yours compared to my earlier answer i meant <laughs> um so this gas station story actually i moved to Austin about three years ago and was looking to make friends and was introduced to a friend of a friend um, and ended up going out for drinks with people. And the person that this person was dating at the time turned out she had just um, resigned from the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the state environmental agency. And so, of course, the second she tells me that, I just like sit up in my seat, you know. Um, And so she... (laughs) Uh, she said that the reason that she left the agency was because she was having to field calls from gas station owners, like kind of crying on the phone and pleading with her to reduce the fine. And that she eventually just could not take the stress of it um, and sort of quit and uh, joined the Peace Corps and went to Guatemala for like a year. And so that's when you know that there's there's something there. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this is something that's worth looking into. So, yeah. The question is about impact. So that's a really hard one um, and very frustrating, especially when you're working in a state like Texas and doing environmental reporting. Um, The impact of that gas station story has been nothing. Everything continues as it did previously. We got sued. over a blowout it was um so we had a documentary component my bosses probably don't like me mentioning that but i think it's becoming an increasing tactic of industry to sue media organizations um, especially nonprofits like the tribune we have very slim margins you know our libel insurance is a million two million you know and it's like you get dragged into a lawsuit you can burn through that quickly um, but it was so it was in the, it was over the documentary portion of the project and it was this oil company featured in the very beginning that it was like they give us a rig tour and he was just explaining how the fracking process works. We didn't say anything inflammatory or bad about the company in the story. It was just like we said nothing inflammatory about the company, but we had failed to we had no paper trail setting up the interview. And so they said, you misrepresented yourselves. We thought you were doing some kind of fluffy whatever, even though we were asking them questions about climate change and like environmental impacts. And so we um, settled and we had to take them out of the documentary. So I would say I'm super paranoid now about putting everything in writing and sharing your findings with Everyone. I mean, I, I'm like, this is specifically what we're saying about you in this story. And like, it's not worth surprising people, even if it's industry and there's proof that they're, you know, doing something pretty awful, you know, it's not worth getting sued. <laughs> 
Well, that's why I'm thinking it's an increasing tactic. And we um, recently, CJR um, reached out to us and they're doing a story about it. And they were like, can you talk about any experiences like this? And my bosses were like, I really don't you know, want to talk about it. Because you know, it looks bad being sued no matter what. So it's like a big win for them, you know, no matter what happens. Like, it's like, were you negligent? Were you, anyway, it was, um, it was quite a learning experience and I would, Caution everyone to be super careful. You don't let them read it. You don't let them read it. With this, should I talk about the coal mine thing? Yeah, we can. We can maybe talk about. That. So, with the coal mine story, <laughs> it was supposed to publish last Thursday, and then um, one of the companies we were dealing with, they have a particularly very hard-hitting lawyer who like I've dealt with before and um, we um, I knew that they they didn't know the extent of what we were going to report on them and so I sent them sentences from the story saying this is what we're you know this is how we're describing it and they like lost their minds and but <laughs> their response was like little nitpicks but the responses they sent us were like this is blatantly false and blah 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 and it's like and it was like minor really minor things right. but so um, they make these large broader arguments saying that you know your whole story is trash uh, but then if you look at the de- specific details that they're citing and the documents that they're sending they don't have any yeah. evidence to back up what they're saying and i right? i'm pretty sure they would have maybe tried to sue us if i hadn't done that and so we have this long you know email exchange with me being like we want to get your side of the story like let me stress to you how generous it is for a reporter to share their exact findings a lot of reporters don't do that and you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, part of it also is that they're in litigation now with yeah. a family. And so, you know, what we say in the story really matters because it could potentially like sort of affect um, that lawsuit. I think it's important to put in writing by email what you're planning to say about the company before you publish. Give them 24 hours to respond with the idea that they could ask for another 24-hour extension. That's how we do things at Bloomberg. Um, and... Just make you know, let them know what you're planning to write, and then they can't say anything. And if they say this is wrong, we disagree with everything. You make an editorial call. We're going to still run with it, but we're going to include a comment from you saying that you reject our findings. I would also say that if you're doing data analysis, right? If you're looking at financial data and like pulling different data sets and kind of doing your own analysis, keep track of exactly how you're manipulating the data, right? Keep a a running diary um, in a Google Doc um, that you can then share with, uh, whether that's a state agency or a company, share exactly what your steps were, um, and then share your data sets and your findings with them ahead of time and say, hey, this is how I did my analysis. If you find something wrong, please tell me, right? Because one, you don't want to then be, you know, you don't want a situation where you publish the results and then it turns out it's wrong. But also that's, um, for fairness, I think that makes sense. I don't um I don't know the exact details because I was like as soon as it happened I was like this is an editor problem I don't want to hear about it but <laughs> um it was like misrepresentation is there I'm not sure the exact legal argument but they were arguing that we misrepresented ourselves and tricked them I'm not really sure what the you know Oh I was going to say as a follow up to your um comment when you go back and you're fact-checking, uh, in this case, a 
I mean, it's divided up into three stories, but a, you know, 10,000 word story or whatever, especially with a bunch of economic, you know, financial numbers. It's so important as you report to keep track of the documents and where you got the numbers and whatever, so that you don't go crazy when you're fact checking at the end. I think we're going to wrap up here unless there's another question. Thank you guys for a good session. Um, Our contact info is on the conference website if you guys want to get in touch or have more questions. Thank you.